Well, let us open God's word this morning, brothers and sisters, to the eighth chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 8. Our text this morning is verses 22 through 25. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Let us give our attention to God's word this morning, and may he bless the reading and especially the preaching of it this morning. Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 22. This is God's word. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. And they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. Thus ends the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 8. Let us go before the Lord and pray for his blessing and illumination this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning calling upon you to help us. May you, Father, first give our hearts the right disposition toward your word. Cause our hearts to be humbled under the authority of your word. And, Father, we pray that by your spirit you would illumine us to a right understanding of your truth. We pray, Father, this morning that you would cause our faith to be firmly rooted and grounded in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, we pray this morning that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. May you grow our faith and trust in you. We're wholly dependent upon your activity by your spirit in our hearts, hearts that are in need of change. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are quickly approaching the end of this year, this time of year that is typically associated with festive gatherings of friends and of family members. We got a taste of that even this past week, many of us. But this doesn't always reflect the reality of one's year. This does not reflect necessarily the reality of what this December may bring. The close of this year may yield for many a time of sorrow, perhaps through the loss of something or someone that is close to you, or perhaps this December only will be a capstone to a year that has been filled with disappointment and filled with frustration, being it related to COVID or not related to COVID. Indeed, this year for many may be one that feels like going through a hurricane where your little boat is being overtaken and it is quickly sinking. Well, aren't we glad that our 
God has chosen to include in sacred scripture, this narrative in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ where his disciples are in something very similar to a hurricane and their boat is sinking. There is much for us to learn from this passage and there's much for our hearts to be comforted by in this passage this morning as we give our attention to it. The scene is rather simple. Luke doesn't really seem to care a lot about giving us much detail. He doesn't give us detail as to the time or the season or occasion of this event in the life of Jesus and his disciples. It begins in verse 22 simply with, now it happened. On a certain day, Jesus gets into a boat with his disciples and he says, let us go across the lake. We know from the other gospels that this lake is the sea of Galilee, which can also be referenced as a lake, as Luke does here. And in verse 22, we're told that they're launched out onto this lake, namely the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was certainly tired from his ministry. He actually, in the previous section of Luke, he's been around many crowds. He's been teaching and preaching. He is indeed exhausted and tired. And the scripture tells us that as they sail, Jesus fell asleep on the boat. At this time, we're told that a windstorm now comes along and it comes down on the Sea of Galilee. And this would just simply be a squall. It is a severe local storm out in the middle of the sea, which was commonplace for the Sea of Galilee. These would happen rather frequently. It was positioned perfectly as the the mountains that surrounded it. The wind would come down and do all kinds of crazy things. But this seems to have been a squall that was unlike what the disciples had seen before. Because you see, we have to remember that on board this boat are skilled, rather experienced fishermen. At least some of these men were experienced seamen. They had come across storms before, even severe squalls before. They knew how to navigate and how to maneuver around rough waters in severe conditions. Severe conditions on the Sea of Galilee were nothing new to them. But this was a storm that seems to have been beyond their capabilities. Even as skilled seamen, these hurricane-type winds were creating waves, and these waves were not only slapping up against the boat, they were actually finding their way into the boat, and so much were they coming over the edge of the boat that the boat actually began to fill up, the Scripture tells us. Our text says that they were in jeopardy, which is to say their lives were in danger. They were not just nearing a difficult situation. They already were in a severe, a dire situation where their lives were in danger of being lost, truly. These seasoned men of the sea, you see, who had initially had everything under their control and they knew what they were doing, they found themselves in a storm that was out of their league. Fear sets in. And then begins the panic of the men on board. 
We find something very remarkable at this point because we read in verse 24 that they came to him and they awoke him. It's remarkable that we find that Jesus is still asleep on the boat. Now, let me remind us that you and I might could imagine being on a boat in a very tranquil type state, laying down in the base of a canoe or a boat on a beautiful day and allowing the the boat as it kind of rocked to almost just lull you to sleep. I can even envision someone sleeping quite easily out laying in a boat as it kind of rocked back and forth, almost like a crib. But let me remind us that at this point in the narrative, it was nothing like that. This was anything but a lull. This was amidst the storm that was even threatening their lives, we find that Jesus had still not woken up. I mean, just think about this, this little boat being tossed to and fro. Surely Jesus' body was getting jostled around, as was the other disciples on the boat. And yet, he was still asleep. Now, does this merely speak to just how exhausted Jesus was? <laughs> is that all that this is really touching on? Is boy, he truly was fatigued to not be waking up after such jostling around. Well, Jesus certainly was exhausted. And possessing a true human nature, he was subject to human fatigue just like we are. But it doesn't seem that Luke is just communicating that to us. That Jesus was just exhausted and that's why he was still sleeping. Rather, what we find in the text, really that what Luke seems to be doing, is he's setting forth a contrast in this narrative. And the contrast is this. We find the disciples full of fear and full of panic. But we find Jesus without fear. And he's perfectly calm. Just as you and I would be if we were sleeping. It's at this point when they are near death. Only then do they turn and approach Jesus to awaken him. And in their panic-filled fear, they say to the Lord Jesus, Master Master, we are perishing. Verse 24. Now, we have no reason to believe that the disciples were just simply waking Jesus up to inform him, hey, we're all about to die, just wanted to let you know. We have no reason to believe that that's all that they're doing here. No, there seems to be rather in the waking up of Jesus, their desire is that they're looking to Jesus for something. They're not waking him up just to let him be aware that everybody's in danger. Maybe you can help us grab a bucket and get some of this water over. No, they're looking to Jesus in some fashion to do something here. In the Gospel of Matthew, they actually said this, Lord, save us. You see, they're pleading for him to do something. And actually in the book of Mark, it speaks with a little bit more of an accusatory tone when they say to Jesus, Jesus, do you even care about us that we are perishing? 
So in their panic and in their fear, they're awakening this one who is not panicked. They're awakening this one who's demonstrating absolutely no fear. And they're looking to him to do something about this grave situation. We're told in verse 24 of our text that then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging water, and they ceased. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, the, the, the reader has really already been introduced to Luke's usage of this word rebuke. Back in chapter 4 of Luke, we find that Jesus rebukes an unclean spirit, a demon that has possessed a man. And, of course, immediately upon rebuking the demon, the deep demon comes out of him. We also find in that same chapter of Luke that Jesus comes to the house of Simon where Simon's mother-in-law was ill unto death and she had a very high fever and the scripture uses that word again. Jesus rebuked the strong fever and what happened? The fever came right out of her. Jesus exercised authority over the demon and the fever and he exercised that authority for them to do whatsoever he willed for them to do. But here in chapter 8, we find that Jesus exercises that same authority over weather, over nature, commanding that the wind and the water do whatsoever he wills. Now, Luke includes something here that shouldn't escape our attention. He says that when Jesus rebuked the wind... And the raging water, they ceased. But then Luke adds a little something onto that. He goes further. Look with me here at our text in verse 24, the very last portion. It says, He arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased. And there was a calm. There was a calm. Now, it would have been well known in the ancient Near East, especially among seamen like some of these disciples, that whenever a squall came through and these high winds created a lot of turmoil, that once those winds died down and those winds ceased, you still had quite a bit to deal with. Because those waters would still be lapping and still be tossing everything in the sea about. Even after the winds had gone, the waters would still be roaring. They would be still quite violent. But what do we find? We find that both the wind and the water alike cease. Such that there was nothing left but a perfect calmness. And there was a calm. We're talking about still waters. If any of you have ever gone out fishing on a lake early in the morning, it seems that the only ripples that you see in the water are those of a bug that touches the surface of the water or your boat that is moving a little bit to the left and to the right. There's that calmness and that stillness of the water. One author put it this way. By Jesus' command, 
the winds and waves synchronize in the sublime symphony of a solemn silence. The seas, you see, became like Jesus was in the boat sleeping. They were calmed. I would like for you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Psalter. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. Psalm 106 is a historical psalm, they call it. There are several psalms in the Psalter that are historical psalms. They're called that because in the psalm you find that the psalmist in his effort to praise God recalls a lot of the history of God's work among his people. And that's what we find in Psalm 106, where he recounts much of Israel's history throughout this psalm. If you can see, it's a rather lengthy psalm because of that. But I want us to look here and start at Psalm 106, verse 7, where the psalmist is now going to recall a particular event in the life of Israel that's very familiar to us. Beginning with verse 7, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make his mighty power known. Verse 9, he rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He rebuked the sea. Yahweh rebuked the Red Sea such that the Red Sea parted so that God's people could be saved out of Egypt ultimately. But what we find is very interesting that, again, that the psalmist here adds which we know also from, from the historical record in the, in the uh, historical books that this was true. But you'll notice that it would have been enough for God to rebuke the Red Sea and leave that portion of land muddy. It would have been perfectly enough for the people, after these walls of water having been separated, that there was still moisture on the ground and it still was kind of sloshy going through the mud. But boy, they still would get to the other side and be saved. But the, the, the psalmist, and as we know from the historical record, God goes beyond what would have been ever expected. And he causes the ground on which they walk to be perfectly dry. Perfectly dry. It says actually in the text, like going through the wilderness where there's absolutely no moisture on the ground. It's like sand. They walked through the sea as if there were no water there. Now, consider what Jesus does in Luke chapter 8. Jesus rebukes the waters, and in this case, it's the Sea of Galilee. And the waters obey his command. 
just as Yahweh rebuked the waters of the Red Sea and they obeyed his command. It would have been enough for Jesus simply to bring the winds to a close so that gradually the water would begin to settle down and not be so violent and be somewhat manageable for the disciples out on the water so that they wouldn't drown. And that probably would have achieved it. They wouldn't have drowned. But what do we find? Jesus goes beyond whatever would be expected. And what do we find him doing? He didn't just stop with the wind. But he even caused the waters to become perfectly calm as if there was no storm at all. Much like Yahweh making the ground as if water had never touched it. It's remarkable what we find Jesus, the God-man, displaying here in Luke chapter 8 that in many ways reflects what you find in Psalm 106 where God rebukes another sea. Now what was the response of the disciples to all of this? Well, in Luke chapter 8, we find in verse 25, if you want to turn back there, the scripture tells us that they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. They once, you see, were overtaken with fear. Fear for their lives due to the storm. But now we find Jesus to be more fear-inducing than the storm itself. At the Grand Canyon, which maybe some of you have seen personally, there is now a $30 million skywalk um, glass bridge that goes out over a portion of the canyon that allows one to see what can't even be seen from the ledge. It allows you to literally walk over that portion of the canyon, and it is said that as one looks out over the canyon and even can look down through the glass beneath, that one can be overtaken with awe such that one's own body responds with a kind of fear. The magnitude of what lies before that one who is beholding that scene, they're truly awestruck. They're like brought to a point of reverence for what they are beholding such that it could be said that their heart was in a reverent fear. And that's what we find really taking place in the hearts of the disciples here in this text as they respond to what has just occurred in the one who is now before them. You see, the one with them is someone more than who they thought was with them. And they marveled, the scripture says, with a reverent fear over this one. Like John, 
in the book of Revelation. You're familiar with chapter 1, where we find that when John realized he was in the very presence of God, the scripture says that he fell at his feet as though he was dead. He was still. He had a fear and an awe and reverence that overtook John as he was in the presence of God. And of course, Jesus kindly looks down at John and he says to John, fear not. See, no fear, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to Hades and death. Now, there are many things that we can take away from this passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 8. But there are two that I want to highlight for us that may seem obvious, but is something that we certainly do not want to miss as we come away from this text. The first is this. The storm is not purposeless. It is purposeful. The storm is not purposeless. It is purposeful. The disciples' response to Jesus' miracle is something that Jesus wanted them to be petrified in some sense. He was aiming at this kind of response from them. Because you see, we find in the middle of this passage why the storm happened in the first place. After calming the storm, Jesus says to them, where is your faith? Now, of course, Jesus never asks a question for information. He asks a question so that the hearer may ponder that question. And that is what he's doing here with the disciples and with you and I, brothers and sisters. You see, it was Jesus, if you recall, that instructed them to go out into the middle of the water. It was Jesus who intentionally remained asleep while the disciples struggled. It was Jesus that brought about the resolution to this threat. And all of it was orchestrated by Jesus for the sake of shaping the faith of those whom he dearly loves. The whole thing was aimed at their faith. You see, this was an act of love on the part of Jesus. He is truly interested in these hearts of ours. Jesus led the disciples into this storm of difficulty, not for the sake of difficulty, but because he cares about the faith of those whom he loves. And his disciples, he loves. His disciples, he loves. He loves and cares about us so much that he will not leave us as we are. 
Think for a moment. No loving father would have his child struggle or undergo difficulty for the detriment of the child. No. One might allow the child to undergo some difficulty in his life or her life, always aimed at the growth of that child. And there is no storm, brothers and sisters, that our Lord orders for any other purpose than the goal of shaping the faith of those whom he loves. How often does he bring us into the storm that we think ourselves capable of controlling and managing for a time only to find out that it's out of our league? And only then do we turn to the one who is not panicked and has no fear. You see, Jesus knows that faith is that that dispels fear. It's faith that dispels panic amidst the storm. Jesus knows this. And the storms that he brings us into are for the sake of our faith. To turn us once again to him alone. Where we find in him all that we need. Where we find our faith deepened and our trust in him strengthened and enlarged. Because of who he is. That's the whole purpose of any storm. Sent by the providence of a good God. So the first thing, brothers and sisters, is just be mindful that the storms are purposeful. And it's not something that's separate from shaping your faith, but it's part of God's ingredients for growing that faith. You see, strengthening our faith. Every one of the storms. That's the first thing. And the second is this. Focus not on who is outside the boat, but only on who is inside the boat. Do not focus upon who is outside the boat, but on who is inside the boat. You know, a lot of times our panic and fear comes not just from the waters that are coming over and toppling over the boat, but it's also when we look at the shoreline and we see who is not having to go through this particular storm. You see, what we want to make sure, brothers and sisters, and watch this carefully, we want to make sure here that we don't come away from this passage missing the very thing that the disciples got. The temptation with a cursory reading of this particular passage of Luke, is to come away thinking that the marvel of this passage is found in verse 24, where Jesus rebukes the wind and he rebukes the waters and all becomes calm. No, the marvel of this passage, you see, is the very thing that's so easy to race through when you read this passage. The marvel of this passage is not found in verse 24. The marvel of this passage is found in verse 22, where we read, Now it happened on a certain day that he... 
got into a boat with his disciples. There's the marvel. That he got in their boat with them. And it's who that he is that they're left in wonder about at the end of the passage. There is the marvel, you see. You see, this is why the close of this passage, that's why their exclusive attention and their awestruck fear uh, in their hearts is not so much on the doing of Jesus as it is the being of Jesus. Who is this one who is in this boat with us and has been in this boat with us? You see, it's focused on the identity of this one who has been in the boat the whole time. That's what they're marveling over. Because, listen, and this is, again, easy to miss in this passage. Before Jesus says, let's go to the other side of the lake. Before he gives them that direction. We're told that he gets in the boat. What you and I need to hear this morning, brothers and sisters, and I say this especially if you are going through a storm right now in your life, hear this well. Focus your heart upon who got in the boat before you launched. Focus your attention on the one who got in the boat before you ever even launched And see, I think that's what the disciples are wrestling with here. The one who got in the boat way back yonder. We're just now seeing the majesty of who this is that has been in our presence the whole time. He's not over on the shoreline looking at us and cheering us on. He's not over on the shoreline and wishing us well. No, While they're amidst this storm, it's then that they see the majesty of the one who's been in the boat the whole time. With them, not apart from them. Oh, don't let us come away from this text not seeing that. Remember who's in the boat. And you know who is in the boat? I know this is a little strange. But I ask you to take your bulletin for a moment and just turn to the third panel of your bulletin, where you're going to find a quote on the third panel. It's from a very familiar song to us, one that we, many of us, love. It's called Be Still My Soul. But I want you to hear this portion of the lyrics, and I wonder where the hymn writer got them from. He says, Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now, mysterious, shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and the winds still know his voice. Who ruled them while he dwelt below. They still know his voice. It's powerful. That is the one who's in the boat. And that's what our hearts need to meditate on this morning. We're not told in this passage 
what the disciples were expecting when they woke up Jesus. We really don't know what it is that they were expecting him to do. But I think we can conclude with absolute certainty that what Jesus did do exceeded anything. It exceeded everything that the disciples were expecting. It blew them away. Just as Yahweh exceeded the expectations of Israel, here Jesus exceeds the expectations of the disciples. And you know what? He continues to exceed the expectations of all of his disciples in every age. Oh, how often we expect too little from him because we have such a little view of him. Sometimes the storm becomes... The storm becomes our skywalk. The storm becomes the means by which we are allowed to be reminded of how great this one is who's in the boat and how sufficient he is for any and every storm that his providence brings. So remember and focus upon who it is that is in the boat with you. Those are the two things. But you know what? We should be reminded, brothers and sisters, in closing, that the theme of Jesus' entire ministry in relation to all of his miracles was their relationship to what he had come to do with sin. Once Jesus came to a paralyzed man, And in the presence of that paralyzed man and the scribes and the Pharisees that were standing beside, even chiding, Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. That's what Jesus wants us to see with all of his miracles. His authority to do something that's even beyond The changing of the weather. He has the authority to do with sin what only he has the authority to do. Yes, Jesus performs many miraculous wonders in his lifetime. Perhaps changing the weather, commanding the weather, being a display of his authority on a massive scale, probably higher than any of his others in many respects. But all of this points to the greatest display of his authority and power in what he's able to do with our sin. If we see all of his wonders of all of his miracles and miss that, we miss really the heart of why Jesus came. He came to deal with sin. He again exceeds everything that we would ever expect because at the close of Jesus' life, He was lifted high on a tree. And some, the scripture says, cried out, save yourself and come down from that cross. And we're also told that the chief priests looked up upon Jesus who was hanging upon that tree. And we're told that they cried out, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down off that cross that we may see and believe. Did you catch that? 
let him come down off the cross. And only then will we see him rightly. Only then will we believe upon him. No, Jesus breathed his last, not off of that cross, but thank God he breathed his last on that cross. And what we find in that dark hour is that in that very moment there was a centurion that was struck with awe, a fearful reverence of the one in whose presence he was standing. And as he looked at Jesus on that tree, he saw and he believed on him who was upon that tree, such that he confessed, surely this is the Son. Do you want to know the immensity of Jesus' power and authority? Jesus is truly seen and truly believed as he is seen as the one who exercised power over sin and death in his death on the cross. Bearing sin and taking away our sin, it's there on the cross that you truly can see and believe and be saved and have a heart that is as calm as sleeping. For by believing with awe in this one, the Lord Jesus, you know what you'll find? You will find that he is greater than all of your sin, that he is greater than every storm this side of glory. And you will also find that he indeed is able to calm your soul as he calms the sea. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. We believe upon your Son. Oh, how we trust in him. Oh, Father, our all, our all is in him. It is in Christ that we have life. It's in Christ that we have forgiveness. It's in Christ that we do not need fear. And our Father, we are grateful to you for your Son through whom we have this confidence, through whom we have this assurance and security. And Father, we confess to you this morning our need of deeper faith, We are in need of strong trust. Help us, Father, to see that the storms of this life that come only by your perfect providence are your means of taking that faith of ours that's small and enlarging it. And through such a storm, you remind us again and again of the majesty of the one who's been in the boat the whole time. Oh, we love you. We believe, help our unbelief, for we pray it all in the matchless name of our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Children of the living God, receive the blessing from the throne of your God and Father. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
both now and forevermore. Amen and amen.